Welcome back to Campbell Conversations with your host Colin Campbell and today is episode 225 of the podcast and I'm joined in conversation by Rob Dix. Rob is an investment fund advisor, the co-presenter of one of the UK's most popular business podcasts, The Property Podcast, and the author of four best-selling books about property investment. Rob's most recent book is one that you're going to be incredibly interested in and that is The Price of Money, How to Prosper in a Financial World That's Rigged Against You. This is the book that Rob wished that he had on the topic of money when he was growing up and he's gone on to be pretty successful so there's a lot of lessons in this one you can expect to learn why despite the fact humans have spent their entire lives trying to earn more money very few of us actually understand how it works and the best way to use it why money itself is a fiction why you need to forget savings how to take on debt responsibly what assets are real and the value of investing boringly get your pen and paper or your notes app open for this one because there is so much to learn when it comes to personal finance today's podcast is sponsored and supported by my podcast masterclass that is my podcast masterclass that i have built to help you start and sustain a podcast that is actually a borderline impossible task as demonstrated in 2023 when 4 million podcasts started and 80 percent of them had failed before episode 8 had been released and a further 10 percent drop away before episode 21. a well-presented and focused podcast is the ultimate personal brand and networking tool for you and your business and i have distilled down my almost four years of knowledge now into building a top one percent show in a nine module 54 video course so you can start sustain and scale your podcast of course it contains all the nuts and bolts of software equipment and editing but more importantly i include my frameworks for approaching and securing the best possible guests in your niche how to prepare and research for your guests how to expertly host and ask questions and even how to distribute and market your podcast to get the maximum eyes and ears on it i really have put everything into it and it's been out for about two months now and it's amazing to see the first few shows getting started after students have gone through the entire process the link to enroll is in the show notes and it's www.mypodcastmasterclass.thinkific.com now that is quite enough from me next week you will have the final of the dubai tour podcast with adam power that'll be going out next sunday and this is our first episode of the new year the 7th of january so happy new year to you if i've not said it to you already I am so excited with the direction the podcast is going in 2024 and I'm so grateful for all your support. So please make sure you are subscribed if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Hit that five-star rating button. You know how much that helps. And I cannot wait to bring you some of these episodes. And the first of these is with Rob Dix and I know you're going to love it. The music's going to play and you've got an hour with myself and Rob. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Good to meet you. And when I was thinking about getting prepared for this, you are known as the property guy online, in my opinion. You've been in this space for such a long time. You've built a phenomenal audience in that space, but you've actually opened up to have a conversation about far more than property in recent years. And you've had your recent book, The Price of Money. What got you interested in kind of speaking about things away from just property more recently? I think property for me, as it is for many people, is a gateway into thinking about investing more generally and the economy more generally. And I think it's a really good gateway because everyone feels like they understand property on at least some level. Like the the, the income stream from it is really obvious. The, the change in prices of property you hear about all the time in the press, we're obsessed with it. So everyone kind of gets how the economics of it works. And as an investment, you kind of know what makes an attractive one versus an unattractive one. Um, so it's quite a nice way in to then sort of thinking about, well, 
that's something I understand. But then we look at the stock market. It's not really that different. You've got the same sort of two income streams that come from it. And then obviously all these investments operate within um, within the economy. So you need to know what's going on with the economy to know you could pick the best house in the best neighborhood. But if the market's about to crash because of some reason, then you're not going to do that well. And so you need to. So for me, I've been in property for something like 15 years or like more, longer than I'd like to think about. But but quite quickly in that process, I started getting interested in far more than just property. And then and my interest in economics went up several notches when um, when COVID sort of kicked off in 2020, because that's when we just had this sudden shift from, we had Theresa May saying there's no magic money tree over and over again, to suddenly like 400 billion produced out of thin air, because we need to pay everyone to sit at home. We're like, what? <laughs> How does that work? And so that sort of kicked, sent me off on this journey of trying to understand how that's possible, how the whole financial system works, which culminated in uh, that book, The Price of Money. Yeah, I find it fascinating. And I think a lot of the time when a big event has a jolt reaction across the world and we had more time than ever before, particularly in that period where there is a, a an official lockdown, a lot of people turned their hand to trying to understand what on earth is quite going on. And given you were like by that point a skilled investor it probably made sense to be like right well i wonder why these things happen because um uh, maybe you've hosted him as well but dr daniel crosby from the states he's uh, the author of the behavioral investor mm. he came on the show early last year and he was speaking about money having like the highest level of excitatory power when they did like tests on people were about whether it was sex or food or um sports money was the thing that got people's neurons in their brain firing the most during these tests mm. But the vast majority of people, albeit they're excited by money, they don't typically understand like the fundamentals behind it. Like, of course, we know we, we need to use it to pay for things. But a lot of the time when people are trying to understand, like, where does money come from? What's it backed by? Which I'm sure we'll get on to. They would be none the wiser. Well, and, and that's even for some people that are like have a relative interest in the space, too. That's absolutely right. And that was one of the the reasons I wanted to write the book because it's like, well, if I've been adjacent to this industry for all this time and I don't understand it, what chance has someone else got? And I think, and I, I know part of some of your audience are interested in crypto. I think crypto is another really good way into this because that gets you thinking about, well, what is money really? Uh, but if you don't, if you're not um, encouraged to do it um, by having a relationship with crypto or whatever, then you just don't. Um, and you, so you, but so it's helpful if you do get back to the real kind of fundamental building blocks of what is this thing? Because it once, if you can, if you can do that and you can keep, you can keep that in mind and not get thrown off by all the jargon and the buzzwords and the complexity that's built on top of it, then it's actually a lot more understandable than it seems. But I think if you if you if you have but you have to come at it from some variation of the first principles because if you try to understand it just based on what you've read in the paper today, it's never going to make any sense to you. I, I completely agree, and that phrase "first principles" is something that I think you completely achieved with your book as well. Because uh, I'm not going to say layman's terms because that's doing it a disservice, but you spoke in a terms that people could understand. And the, the man that connected us, Andrew Craig, who's been a fantastic guest on both our shows he did that so well with how to own the world and i think when you carry on in the same vein where people can pick it up who maybe haven't delved into this subject before and not feel excluded or isolated by the language of course they feel intellectually stimulated because it's new ideas that they're taking on board but you haven't automatically put up the barrier and been like yes we're just going to make this unnecessarily complicated for you and use a lot of words and a lot of terminology that is designed at its very root to 
make you not want to consider this subject because then you might understand what's going on and not be as comfortable with it as you are kind of drifting through your life at this moment in time. Absolutely. I, I, I love hearing from people who, who write to me and say that they, like their friend recommended it to them. They never would have normally picked up a book like this or they weren't expecting to enjoy it, but they powered through it in a weekend or whatever. I love hearing stuff like that because it's like, yeah, it's great. It shows that it is, it is possible. People do fundamentally want to understand. I think it just gets kind of put in the too hard pile a lot of the time because people don't have the right way in but everyone is completely capable of of understanding it and um and should like i say in the book we spend like at least a, a third or probably like half our waking hours in pursuit of money in some way or the other without knowing what it is or where it comes from or anything it's a bit nuts exactly that and in in the book early on you described money as a fiction what did you mean by that so it's a fiction in in the best possible way in that there is like Money is money is whatever we want it to be, and money has been different. Has been different, taken different forms throughout time. And in, in the past, it's been shells or notches on a stick or whatever. It can be anything, but it's something that we have collectively agreed upon um, because it. Um, because it's useful because with like without money you're just stuck swapping things with each other um with money it allows you to have a far more it allows you to have bigger economies like you cut you couldn't imagine an economy like our economy like ours would not be possible without money having having any kind of big big project involving the coordination of hundreds of people wouldn't be possible without money and with money you can also um sort of store value and transmit it through time so if you if you grow some food today, you don't have to like sort of swap all that food with people before it goes off. Now you can you can sort of store it and and have that for the future. Um, but the, but the the money the money itself can be can be anything and has no particular meaning except the meaning we give it. And I think that's it's it, that's it's an incredibly powerful thing. It's an incredible technology. It's amazing that we've sort of accept, we've hit upon something that allows the world to function so much better and more advanced than it otherwise would. But also because it is so nebulous and hard to pin down, it's it is it kind of conversely makes it hard to understand, and it means that we can project whatever we want onto it because it, it has no meaning in itself. Um, which so I think people get very which probably why people get very emotional about money it's an it's an it's a super emotional subject um so yeah that's so money is a fiction is is like not a statement about um how the monetary system is set up today although money is probably more fictional today than it ever has been before but it is just like fund a fundamental truth and i think if you can if you can keep that in that mind, like what actually is money? What is it for? It's for um, it's for exchanging value and transmitting value through time. If you can keep that core in mind, then it means everything else makes a lot more sense, and that's what really matters. Stuff about quantitative easing and yields and all the rest of it, yeah, they matter, but they don't matter as much as what money really is in the first place. Exactly that, and that's why I think what's one of the kind of most important first questions to ask you, because as soon as you understand that it's something that we've assigned a value to over time to enable us. It makes it much easier to understand maybe what's going on with money and why it's changing and potentially um, coming coming to coming to a sticky conclusion in terms of how we treat it at the moment. And I, I find it really, really interesting when somebody says a statement like that and people bristle or they maybe don't quite understand what they what, what they mean by that. But the way that you've explained it is, is so, so vital. And like you say, it could be anything in different periods of time. Like you say, it could have been a notch in a stick or 
otherwise when you're trying to maybe trade good with somebody goods with somebody you're swapping them something that they deem to be of value but it just so happens that in the vast majority of modern economies we agree that this piece of paper or this pound coin or this thing that i send you electronically is worth x y or z and then you base the transaction based on the number of those x y or z things that you would like yeah Totally. And you can go off in different areas with this, but if you, but then it's just like, if everyone's interested in how to get more money, well, then the answer is provide more value, right? Because that's what money is. It's, it's a bit, people will only give it to you if they value what you're giving them in return. So, I mean, obviously it's not being, it's, this isn't a, a value judgment in that like some some people do provide a lot of value but are very underpaid for it that's com- that's a completely different political economic thing or whatever but but at heart it's just like well that's the that's the thing if you want to get money you you need to you need to provide value more value to more people exactly that and as you said there in terms of like political terms people are like oh no but like my value to society through this particular role or industry that i work within is higher than i am paid well one measure of your value in that sense in that sense is the is the income that you bring in through that and maybe you've got a problem in terms of communicating the value that you've got rather than the value that you bring it's maybe the fact that you're unable to communicate that what you're doing is more valuable than whatever else is compared to you that's that's more highly paid and i think people mm-hmm. again they bristle at that thought where they're like oh well but my my value is is more than the money that i bring in yes but in terms of if we're using this one particular measure we have to understand that that's what it is yeah, I think that's right. And I'm going way off on one now, but I but there's a there's a um because I've, I've got a one year old, so that I sort of stick him in front of YouTube a lot. And there's a, there's a a preschool teacher called Miss Rachel who's got like tens of million views on all her videos, and is, and I've like looked up biographies and stuff because it's really interesting. She's absolutely coining it. Um, but what she's doing is fundamentally no different from what any nursery teacher is doing in person. She's just doing it to millions of people and so so that that's that's kind of an example of this whole value thing like she's because of the economics of the or the way the delivery mechanism the internet she's able to provide value to so many more people so she receives more value in return and so obviously this isn't saying all nursery teachers should just do it online but but it's kind of it's Again, it's not a value judgment, but it's making a point about like how about how things work. There's a, there's a reason why she's making hundred thousand times more than anyone else is, and it's because of the the amount of value that she's providing in total by reaching more people. Yeah, one of the concepts that's been coming up a lot in the podcast with recent guests has been distribution, mm. and it, in the modern world, we can talk about the pitfalls and the the downsides of social media, etc. But it does allow you to distribute to far more people and it we were mentioned before we hit record i was singing the praises of the of the podcast that you've built and the distribution network you've got there has allowed you to create other businesses like your fund and like your other services that come off the back of that that would be that are far more impactful and fiscally rewarding than if you didn't have that distribution mm-hmm. network so a lot of people need to consider like perhaps your fund or your services similar to somebody that has a much smaller network than you but your distribution allows you to either charge a higher rate or to reach more people have more customers because of the work that's gone into the other area as well and again that is a measure of value as well in terms of the number of eyes and ears you can get onto your products yeah absolutely right and that's it's 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 an exciting thing but it's also it's well it's a scary thing for a lot of people as well it, it opens up a huge distribution of outcomes it's now it's now possible to do so much better but the default is probably people progressively 
doing worse like you used to be able to you know you used to be able to just sort of plod along in the same job for 40 years get a nice pension that guaranteed pension at the end of it you'd probably you'd have your house paid off by then and it would be all good but that default path now is is not as attractive which means you it's not fair but you need to you need to find ways of, of taking matters into your own hands and understanding what is possible so you can improve that improve on that default outcome exactly that and within the title of the book you've said that this is how to prosper in a financial system or a financial world that's rigged against you what are the main ways that you feel it's rigged against you there's a few there's a few ways into this so when one is um one is central banks um the Central banks, um, people—I don't know if people understand this—but they are—they—they can just—they can create money out of thin air. So if you like, this is another another take on this money is a fiction thing. But just like they—they like, they can literally create it out of nothing. Um, and so people may consider that that's that's unfair because if you could, we're all working for our money and they could just create it out of nothing, and then that ends up coming, as we've seen recently, coming back and biting us in terms of inflation. So. At a very simplified level, um, too much money was created in response to COVID. I'm not saying that I would have created exactly the right amount, but it, but it was, but it was obviously too much in retrospect because then that that means that there's more money in the system chasing a smaller amount of goods. The result of that is inflation. So cent- central banks sort of did it because they could, and it's everyone else who ends up suffering the consequences of that um, because our wages aren't going as far as they used to. Um, so that's that's one. Um, another is um, just the um, is the fact that the rate of inflation has been higher than the rate of interest for the last 15 years or so. So if this wasn't this wasn't always the case, um, but now it used to be the case that if you put kept money in the bank, you would make a positive return on it. But now after inflation, you're guaranteed to make a negative return on it because you might put in a hundred pounds and have a hundred and three pounds by the end of the year, but that'll that'll buy you less than a hundred pounds would have done a year ago. So you're it looks like you're going forwards, but you're actually going backwards. So that's just two that's just two examples of um I think how the uh the, the world is is not set up to to benefit your average person. And I think they're linked as well, because as you said, the the creation of money, quantitative easing, which again, I think is a term that's really come into the public conscious, particularly the kind of person that would listen to a podcast at like this one. Over the last few years, you become a lot more aware of it. And that's basically just a fancy term for money printing or the creation of money, like adding zeros to the to the spreadsheet or whatever or whatever format they're using to to to, to create more. And as you said, during C19 was when that was really ramped up to a higher level. But even before that, I'm... Um, I read that Trump was the president or, or Trump and Obama combined had created more dollars than any other presidents in, in, in history combined. And that sh- like was like a warning sign, like well before the, the C-19 period, which was when it went to like the next possible level, because you also had the, the kind of dangerous precedent of money was being created without any even close to equivalent value or productivity being created in, in, in mm-hmm. balance to it. And conspiratorially, I've, I've joked with friends before that it was almost like a conditioning piece for potentially introducing something like UBI or universal basic income because stay at home and you get paid this amount anyway with the furlough scheme. And, and mm. again, we, we don't need to put our tinfoil hats on today for that, Rob. But I certainly think that when you have a situation where money's being created, but there's nothing that's being like offset against it, 
then of course we're going to go into this spiral of inflation that we have seen over a period, which has probably been like a more more of a stark warning for people. And I think more people appreciate inflation than ever before. That kind of second piece where you're talking about leaving money in the bank traditionally is conventional wisdom would have been you're saving up. That's really positive. That's a great thing. But in the last few years, that has been quite literally uh, like of, of detriment to your wealth. Mm, yeah. And it's really unfortunate because it, it shouldn't be that way. Like saving should be a behavior that's rewarded and you shouldn't need to take risks with your money in order for it to grow and that people are being forced to take risks that they don't really want to take and they don't they don't really understand um whereas what they really want is to just leave it in the bank and for it and for it to grow but that's just not been possible for the last so sort of since 2008 now interestingly you meant we've talked about um the covid response but in the book you at length stress the slight differences between the 2008 financial crash response and the lockdown response mm-hmm. what were the key differences that you called out so the super quick version of this is that um loads of money was created billions were created um in 2008 um so the central bank just sort of typed them into its spreadsheet that i imagine they've got somewhere and um and the money Poof, it exists, but um, but then it was given to to banks to to shore up their balance sheets, and it stayed in the in the financial system. So it it, it all, for, for, from the from the point of view of the average person, it made no difference that the money had come into existence. So people couldn't change their behaviour. But what what changed and um, with the COVID money printing was the entire point of it was to get it out into the financial system because it needed to be get to people to pay people for not working, pay people for going out to eat. Remember that? That was weird. Why, they, why was that? Um, but the whole point, but that was the whole point. So that that money like was introduced or put directly into people's pockets, which meant that even if the amount of productive capacity had stayed the same, the amount of goods and services had been the same, um, you have more more money competing to to buy those, which though the price has to adjust upwards. Um, so as it happens, the productive capacity was actually decreased as well because of all the stuff to do with COVID. But even if it hadn't, so like if you if if they gave if they'd given every person an extra million pounds, then so everyone had what they had before plus a million, then you think, oh well, that's fantastic. But because everyone else has got a million as well, the only response to that is prices have to correct upwards. They have to. It's not people profiteering. It's the only way of allocating scarce resources. So it's not it's not a complicated thing. It's just that's um, that's the way it played out. And so yes, now as a result of that, everyone is very aware of inflation, which I always think it's generally not a good thing when people are interested in the economy. Like if people if if it's if people just have no idea what's going on with inflation or or not thinking about economics or anything else, that probably means that things are humming along quite nicely. But the fact that everyone has been focused on it means that something's that's gone such wrong. a good point, isn't it? Like when people are aware of something, it's because it's either causing them pain or pleasure, and more often than not pain is a far greater motivator or it sharpens the mind far more than than pleasure so like you say if people were maybe not too fussed about it or bringing it up the chances are they're just bumbling along kind of roughly where they are inflation might be at two three percent which is that kind of magic number which they mm-hmm. seem to seem to fixate on but and I, I, i'd like to definitely talk about that with you but it's a uh, it was a it was an incredibly interesting period and i think it's so important that you call out the difference between putting money into the financial system versus putting money into the hands of the consumer because it was to almost encourage people while they were staying at home to still spend money like eat out to help out 
online sales and e-commerce just went absolutely crazy. I've had a number of um, kind of e-com guys in the podcast and they said that 2020, 2021 was just a remarkable period for you could launch any e-com business and it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Mm. Whereas now a lot of people who were successful during that period have like completely lost those businesses because the money is not in such readily available supply and people don't have as much expendable income to spend on an advert they've just seen on uh, Instagram for a new t-shirt company they've never heard of and they quite like the design. They're like, you know what? I'm sitting at home. I'm not able to spend money in the pubs and clubs. I'll just buy that. So it's a radically different uh, set of circumstances. But I mentioned there about inflation at two or 3%, which is kind of like almost like a level that people or the the, the, the government and the central banks are like happy with. Mm-hmm. Why is that? So central banks um, and governments like inflation um, because they are terrified of deflation. So the, I don't, I don't buy into this theory, but the, but the argument goes that if things, if you know, things are going to be cheaper in a year's time than they are today, then you'll defer your spending. You won't buy it today. You'll wait for it to get cheaper. And obviously that's not good from, um, from a government's point of view, because, um, it hurts, um, it hurts GDP. So it means people, people don't want, people want to buy less today, which means less gets produced today, which means people get laid off and all the rest of it. So conventional wisdom goes, that's a bad thing. Therefore you want to have, ideally you want to have prices at least steady. If you have prices going up a little bit, then it has two, two advantages. Firstly, it means that if you undershoot, you go back to going towards zero rather than going below zero. And also it means if things are getting a little bit more expensive, then it means you're more likely to buy things today. I don't know if that's really true because like, for a start, there's so many things that we have to have today. Like you're not going to do your weekly grocery shop in a year's time rather than today. And you're also there's all manner yeah. of things like technology is an obvious one where you know that the next version of whatever is going to be faster, cheaper, whatever, but you buy it today because you want it. But that's how, that's how the argument goes. Um, of course, if inflation gets too high, as we've had recently, then everyone notices and you don't want that. Um, and so, and then everyone starts demanding higher pay to keep up with inflation um, and you can get into a spiral. So there's no particular reason why 2% was chosen as a target in the first place, but it, except that it kind of makes sense, right? It's, it's, a, it's enough, but not too much. And there's been like academic research showing that you could get up to like, sort of like sort of three, 4% before anyone really notices. Um, but when you get like up towards the double digits, like we have clearly that's gone too far. It's that erosion of wealth by stealth that yeah. happens with that. And one of the things that I really enjoyed around your around your work, Rob, was you were speaking about the impact of inflation upon debt. Mm. And when it comes to the modern societies that we live in and we are recording from just now, and of course the US, debt is like at all time highs. And the relationship between debt and inflation is something that perhaps we as we we as general members of society aren't as interested in as the 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 government's just due to the volume of debt that they currently have yeah so i'm out of practice at explaining this but i'll see i'll see if i can have have a go but the the basically so governments um governments have a pile of of debt so they've accumulated debt over time governments have the uk government has spent more than it's brought in in something like all but six years out of the last 40 or something like that and it's like and that's not going to change so the 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 amount of money that they owe is only growing so they they owe more and more pounds every year um the way that they 
service that debt, the way they pay the interest on that debt is through um, is through tax revenues. So tax revenue comes in, they use that to pay the debt. So and tax revenues are are, are a percentage of the total amount that's sort of created in the economy. So if the economy is growing, tax revenues are going up, then you can pay the debt. Life is good. Um, if you so the only the only way to actually reduce the debt or make the debt more manageable is to have um, is to have more revenue to to pay it down with. One way of doing that is just increase the price of everything. <laughs> because if, every, if like, producing ten percent more is hard, making everything ten percent more expensive is a lot easier. Um, and because the amount of pounds or dollars or whatever that you owe is fixed, if you can pull off that trick, then it makes your debt load more manageable. Um, the reverse of that, if you get deflation, obviously super bad because it makes that your debt uh, less affordable. So. Because like, even if you even before you get into the fact that interest rates have gone up over the last couple of years, which is a whole other thing, even even before you get to that point, you need to have inflation because the amount that you the amount that governments owe is going to go up and is going to keep going up. Therefore, you need to keep on. You either need to have a huge productivity boom or you need to have inflation. And inflation is the easier one of the two to have. So you you've got to have it. There's no way out of it. Like you you'd like you'd like to like the, the the there's no there's no way out from this amount of debt you don't you don't like gracefully pay this debt down until it's gone now it's just not going to happen you just have to keep it manageable it's the only way yeah and i think that's why there is kind of conversations of like almost an end of ages piece or like an end of empire piece when it comes to the west and you can talk about that from a political perspective but from a financial perspective if you look at how things are happening there's not that many dissimilarities to like the end of places like the roman empire etc where we're all fighting about things that are typically less important than than than, than the day-to-day -day and we're distracted by all sorts of different causes and uh, world events and you're seeing this situation where <laughs> the debts are out of control for the us that they owe to a china for example who are the kind of coming force and if inflation was to be lower it actually makes it even harder for them to pay off those debts too China is their debtor. Yeah, it, it's it's the it, it's absolutely insane when you think about it that like that we're in this situation, but no one ever talks about it because it's um, like the the fact that I guess think people have been lulled into a false sense of security because like the the amount of um, government debt, private debt, every kind of debt since the seventies has absolutely exploded. I've got charts in the book. You can find charts anywhere that show you debt over time. And if you like look back over history, it's just like bumbling along. You can't even really see it. And then shoop, it, 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 it suddenly sort of hockey sticks upwards from the seventies. And you could look at that and go, oh, that's a bad idea. But it's been offset by the fact that interest rates have been falling over that period which means that debts have become it's it's been you when obviously when interest rates are lower you can service a higher amount of debt so debt's been going up interest rates have come and coming down so the ability to service that debt has actually been the same so i think because debt has reached such a high level but the world hasn't ended people have been lulled into a false sense of security but now of course interest rates are going up again and every time when when a sort of a 10 year a 10 year loan or whatever becomes falls due you can't repay it. There's no money to repay it with. You just have to roll it over. And the new lender is going to want a higher rate of interest, which means that more and more, um, more and more of the of the nation's tax revenue is going to go towards repaying the debt. Um, 
but still the debt needs to keep go, going upwards. And so like, well, what do you, so eventually you, go, you end up just like borrowing just to pay off the interest on your own borrowing. And so it's, I don't know how you get out of it, but it's, and it can, it can always go on for longer than you think. Like unsustainable systems can be sustained for far longer than anyone expects, but there does come a point where it just can't be sustained any longer. Yeah, I saw you and Rob do a video on your channel about kind of Ray Dalio's predictions for what happens at the end of the kind of end of ages or the end of a cycle. And it is doom and gloom. And it's like that whole kind of Mad Max versus uh, Star Trek that, that, that Andrew Craig talks about. And he, I think he's writing about for his book that I'm sure you and I will be reading next year when it comes out. It's quite alarming when you think about what that might actually mean. But as you've quite rightly said, these things can go on for a very long period of time. And the event that so many people talk about, particularly when they understand it as well as you do, is um, when the dollar came off the gold standard in the 1970s. That was a very long time ago now. Mm. And we've kind of, I don't want to say bumbled on since then, but we've there's been relatively prosperous periods during that time where standards of living have increased. But during that time, debt, as you said, quite rightly, if you look at some of the charts, has just gone vertically up the way. And that that can't really continue forever, but it can bumble on for a, for a good while longer. And that's why in, unless something systematically, fundamentally changes, we are probably going to go through a change of the monetary system that's like nothing we've seen in, well, in, in recent history. Mm, exactly. And it's, it's, it's just impossible to say what that is or when that is. That's the, you know, it's going to happen. Like the, na the nature of it is like, it's just basic incentives. Like if no one, the, even if there were a way to get to grips with it, if it's just like, right, we just need to knuckle down for 20 years and do this, do that, and it will be taken care of. It's not going to happen because the people who are in power are only in power for say five years. And so that, so they, the, there's no incentive. The, the incentive is to just keep, keep on pushing it, keep on pushing it and just try to keep the party going. Because so it's not, it's not going to sort of come to an elegant end something's going to break and it's going to and but it's just the kind of unsatisfying conclusion at the end of the book is well this is all happening it's all going to happen if this is all true but you kind of need to not worry about it too much because there's nothing you can do about it you can't predict when it's going to be what it's going to be and there are people who've been like predicting the end of the world like you said sort of since the, since the 70s and so but then if you just go and sort of bury all your money in the back garden then you'll have you'd have missed out 50 years of growth and all the rest of it so what are you going to do exactly that and then um, we were mentioning before we hit record about the nature of needing to do short form clips for your longer form content to entice people and i'm going to mention two in particular one of them was when i had damien um jordan on the show who you've been on his podcast damien talks money and uh, damien said that michael burry had predicted 52 of the last two crashes and it went on <laughs> tiktok and people were furious they were like so angry that like, how dare you make fun of him and Damien was like, yeah, but like you can be a doom monger all the time and always be like ringing the, the, the bell of, um, oh, it, we're, we're heading towards oblivion. Or as you do, you can talk about different principles that might protect the individual. And of course, you would say, I wish governments would do X, Y, and Z or understand this a bit better and take a longer time horizon than a five-year electoral cycle and all these things that we can complain about. But if you do just always be like, oh, um, well, you can be like, oh, this stock's going to zero, this crypto coin's going to zero, the, 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 everything's finished okay, great. But what are you going to do about it? Like you can't mm. just say that. And the second clip I want to mention is Andrew Craig was speaking on the podcast about the nature of UK spending versus GDP. 
And he was saying that it's actually higher than the communist uh, state in Russia during the 1930s. And it's continued to go that way. And of course, we were talking there about Theresa May said there's not a money tree and Cameron got elected in 2010 in the coalition under a mandate of austerity. But if you look in real terms, even inflation adjusted, state spending in the UK is higher than it's ever been by like something like a third. And of course, that money's been spent poorly and services aren't great and everyone's everyone's not particularly happy with maybe privatization sneakily done of the nhs and it, all these other political matters we can talk about but if you look in real terms we're spending more money than ever before and mm. the debt's going to increase off the back of that because we haven't radically shifted our ability to produce more of that money and we can maybe talk about the fact that ai and other productivity methods might help us do that but it doesn't seem to be moving fast enough to eat into this deficit that we're building yeah, that's right. Like when we had that like, decade of austerity that came to an end when, when COVID started, like we didn't, we I don't know, I can't remember, we didn't quite get back into positive territory. Like so, like I said that um, the government spends more than it brings in, like pretty much every year. Um, I think it either just about got into a surplus or it just about fell short in the final one of those of those ten years when 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 we're supposed to be make, making these terrible cuts to public services, um, but that was just to try and get back to zero, like let alone actually sort of be turning a profit. It's just, but but what do you do? I don't, I don't because like. It's, it's you're not like no one's suggesting that you sort of like you leave everyone destitute and of course you can po- you can point to infinite things that people would like more money to be spent on but what what do you do there is there is no easy fix to any of it there's a finite amount of money that can be spent on these things particularly when it comes to the public because the public sector isn't as good at producing wealth and productivity as the private sector but we also then can't hamstring the private sector from doing these things and um, like I'll, I'll confess I'm, I'm i'm pro capitalism in many forms but i'm very anti crony capitalism which is one of the challenges that we face when we want to kind of cut the red tape and let people create and generate profit and give people jobs and all these positive things that kind of like a rising tide raises all ships mm. but we've seen so many situations in the last few years where that money's misallocated and these things are taken advantage of and You've got things in the US like Sam Bankman Freed where it's just it's just gone to pot when we've kind of been like, oh, these guys are like the the new brave frontier of finance and we end mm. up in these ridiculous positions. But as I said, Rob, one of the things that I think is so refreshing about your take is yes, you've got all this noise and this negativity, but you provide five principles that people can put in place to try and prosper in this system that has all this different challenges around it. And the first of those is talking about forgetting about savings. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so this was the, the the point that we touched on earlier about the fact that saving, like your savings, will lose real value after inflation. So, um, that the it, there there may be brief blips in like in the near future where that's not the case because the rate of the rate of interest that you can get in the bank is probably like what getting up to five percent now in some accounts, maybe a little bit more. The rate of inflation is coming down. There's figures coming out. Um, I think it's later this week as we're recording this. So there may be a brief window of time where it's actually positive, but generally, for reasons I get into in the book, it, it's going to stay the case that the rate of inflation is going to be higher than the rate of interest, which means you're always going to be losing out. So. I don't, I'm not saying like so saving is the first step towards investing. So you have to save, you have to live below your means. Of course you do. Um, you have to have an emergency fund, all this sensible stuff, but then that can't be the end of it because that's, you, you have to take that next step. Like I said earlier, many people would rather not, but, but the reality is you have to go and invest in something. Um, if you're going to grow your money. When it comes to 
saving, you speak really well in the book around being conscious and intentional with your spending. What advice would you give to people to try and achieve that? Um, there's, so I think, think that there's a couple of things you can do. One is to, um, to have like a, a one-off spending audit. So not, it might not be the most fun task in the world, but go, th go through your bank statement from the last month and just see what's on there. And quite, if, I'm sure I'm as guilty of this as anyone, but there'll be things on there you have no idea you're paying for, so you can just cancel them. There'll be other, and then everything else you go, yeah, I'm, I'm paying for this, but like, do, I, do I value that thing more than the money? Which is again back to the whole what what is money thing, but it's just like so. I I spend spend fifty quid on that subscription. Do I what do I value more that or the fifty quid? And all of us, our preferences change over time. So there was a time when that was the right thing to do. Now it might not be. Um. So that so that's one thing. And I think we could all be a lot more intentional about where we spend our money because we just fall into default. All of us do it. We'll 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 spend money because. On, on things because everyone else does or because we think it will impress someone or because we used we used to enjoy it and now we don't and i think it's very easy to slip into those defaults and we need to make them make it a bit more conscious um the other thing you can do which i which i used to do don't anymore which is why i spend more now was every time you every time you spend money uh write it down so you do it, you're not allowed to use an app that connects to your bank account and does it automatically. This has to be the act of writing it down. So don't 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 have a budget. Don't tell yourself that you can't spend it. But every time you you spend money, you have to just like go into your notes app, write down the amount and what you spent it on. Because now everything's like it's like beyond contactless. You just kind of like flash your phone or your watch or whatever. It's so easy to spend money without even realizing it. So like bringing that kind of question back into it, it almost that you get to a point where you go am I going to feel good about doing that, about writing this down in 30 seconds time? And if you just, if you just do that for a while, you'll, you'll find yourself spending less. You'll know as a, as a podcast host, there's certain phrases that you know, your listeners hear from you all the time. And one of mine is always talking about living life on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And I really think that when it comes to spending, particularly with contactless, as you said, when the friction is removed from something, things happen more easily. And that's great for good habits, whether that's going to the gym or eating the foods that you know that you should be eating or saving the money that you should be saving. But when it's less frictionless and you know that it's enabling you to do things that you maybe know might not serve you at a later date. And one of the big things is from a financial perspective, what you what current you does might not serve future you if you're not careful. Mm. That advice to take the time to detach from the situation and consider whether this payment and this sum that I'm about to be parted with is quote unquote valuable to the level that you the, the 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 payment is is a really helpful tool to just detach and as you said you maybe don't do it now but even by instilling that habit at some point in time you're much more likely to do it and i heard you um interviewed by by ali abdel who uh, i'm a tremendous fan of his his concepts and he mentioned it from a fitness perspective and many of my audience are very interested in pursuing their best physique and tracking their calories tracking the macros tracking their workouts and pursuing if they've PR this week on their bench press or their squat or whatever they're up to and everyone at that point in time knows that data is power because then mm. you, you you have fundamental measurements of whether you've been successful or whether you've adhered to the plan or whether you've pursued the goal and met it it's the exact same with money but sometimes and as I said at the start we don't really understand it so we kind of don't treat it in the same way as we treat anything else yeah, the the analogy with um with with food is a really good good one. It's in the same same way that just just tracking your food will make you will make you 
eat less if you want to eat less and make you have healthier habits. Just tracking your money will do it. Like, so, it's, so it's not being on a diet. It's not having a budget, but it's just tra- just the act of tracking alone. It really works. Being conscious. Um, n- number two in your principles was take on debt responsibly. Mm-hmm. And so many people, when they hear the word debt, there's a visceral reaction to it because everyone knows the consequences of being overburdened by debt. Everyone's seen families become destitute or whatever other terrible circumstances befalls them. What's your own opinion on debt, Rob? Yeah, the, the 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 really simple version on debt is you don't want to be taking on debt for um for something that's not going to produce a return. So you don't want to be take, taking on you don't want to take on debt to make up a gap between what you what you have and what you want, right? So don't 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 be debt for for holidays or cars or whatever else. But if it's for something that's going to produce a return for you, then there's an argument for it. Not, not saying you definitely do it and there's not a, and there is a limit to it, but it can make sense. So property is your easier classic example of this. So like you 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 take on you take on debt to buy a property. After paying the cost of servicing that debt, you make a profit. The value of that thing might go up. Happy days. So the, of course Every time you introduce debt, you introduce risk. So it's a question of do you want do you want to take on some extra risk in exchange for the extra upside? Not everyone will, but you can't just have a blanket view of debt is bad, which I think probably many of us start out with for the reasons you said. Yeah, it it, it really does ward people off. And it, again, many previous guests have spoken about differentiated between different kinds of debt. So things like student debt is a common type of debt that many people that maybe listen to this have but you've you've agreed at that moment in time that in the ability to get that particular qualification is deemed quote-unquote worth it for you at that moment in time now you may regret that further down the line if the job doesn't it doesn't get you into the job market that you want to or whatever else equally mortgage is probably one of the most common kinds and you were mentioning property there many people are complete like almost don't even consider a mortgage to be debt they just consider mm. it to be another thing that they they, that they always pay and then you've got things like car payments and everything else that that, that that crop up for people. But these things are all radically different and the debt has like almost a different psychological effect for people too. Yeah, it definitely does. But they but the way if the if in the future, as I argue in the book will be the case, that the the rate of inflation is higher than the rate of interest, then that is that's good news for that's good news for people who borrowed money. And it needs to be that way because who's borrowed more money than anyone else? It's the government. So it's so it's it's kind of it's putting you on that side of the equation because if so, like with property as an example, if you if you borrow a fixed number of pounds to buy a property, and property the the value of that property is lifted just by inflation. So it's not like property prices going mad or anything else. It just it just it's the same. It's going up in the same way as your shopping is going up, exactly the same. Then you end up benefiting because you. The, the asset has gone up and the the debt has remained fixed so that's it, it's it's a it's a powerful tool if you use it in the right way yeah i i certainly agree and when i consider debt that i've taken on personally my mortgage is is, is one of those and, and i'm sure we'll get on to living in the property you own or renting it and, and, and everything like that rob just based on, on on your takes on that but when i walked into a five-year fixed in january 22 just before we saw the big spike 
I could have walked into a three and then been like, oh, well, I can maybe get a lower rate in three years' time. But there was obviously talk that that was going to go the other way. But I was very comfortable with sub 2%. And I was like, right, let's just take it and run with it. Whereas a lot of people were maybe shopping around for, oh, well, maybe I can get 1.5 or I can get two now and in in a year's time or sorry a year's time or three years time or however long they were locked in for they could get a lower one again but for me it's always been about am i comfortable with that percentage over a longer period and if it fixes my my outgoings that's a really comfortable way for me to be if it's coming to budget so i know that if my salary remains the same for this period of time then i'm going to be comfortably able to pay that because it's within my within my wheelhouse yeah totally and yeah i was a couple of years ago trying to fix all my debt for as long as I possibly could because like you say yeah it could get a bit cheaper but it could also get a lot more expensive and it has now got a lot more expensive yeah it's been it's been a remarkable period from 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 that perspective and you did see people shopping around to be like oh maybe I can get a little bit lower or maybe they'll come down but as we both said there if you have it fixed you and you know that that's comfortable at this moment in time and you're not planning on decreasing your earning power then fingers crossed you'll be fine and just the the point you made there the governments are obviously incentivized to if inflation is higher than the interest rate then it's eating into their debt count in the same way if you are somebody that got a mortgage in 2020 for argument's sake and the interest rate is one two percent in it and inflation has been at eight to ten percent over or potentially higher if we if we use certain particular measurements that, that we maybe we, we think are more accurate and you include things like fuel and whatever else then you've actually decreased your debt during that period in a way that's like almost beyond the norm yeah it's um in, uh, inflation is really good news for people who but for people who have borrowed it, it's it's um it's not the way that it's not a way that people necessarily think about and it's not a way that you're not going to in the you know in in your personal life going to go well i want to rack up as much debt as i possibly can because uh, this guy on a podcast said it was a good idea but if you but if you but as but as an investor if you're using it in a way we talked about to invest in something that you believe is going to increase in value over time yet your debt is fixed and everything's been lifted by inflation then it it's um it's great news your third principle you were speaking a lot more about investing and you were talking about avoiding fixed income investments what do you mean by that so this is an interesting one because um i was um so you your typical fixed in income investment is um, government bonds. Um, well, could be could be which is basically lending money to the government. It could be lending money to companies as well. But government bonds is what everyone tends to 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 think about. And the the problem with fixed income is the income is fixed. Um, so if like if so the, if you um, if you sort of give them um, hundred pounds and they sort of say they'll give you three pounds every year in return, then those that will be that will be three pounds every year for the length of the loan but that that three years that three pounds will buy you less with every passing year because of inflation um it's a bit more complex of that because the bond itself has a value and a lot has changed over the last 12 months that means actually bonds are looking more attractive than they were but the the general point is that if you're if you're um if if you're being paid a fixed amount of income, then you that will get eroded by inflation. It then sort of starts to link into the next thing in the book, which is property, because of course the good thing about that is that the the income isn't fixed. So rents, which is your income stream, tend to go up into over time broadly in line with with earnings, which which in turn go up in line with inflation. Not precisely with with a lag and all the rest of it, but broadly, which means that like that that the equivalent of the three pounds might become three pound fifty eventually. And so, you know, it's it it works a lot better. 
Yeah, I completely understood. And a lot of sources that previously were quite bullish and pro bonds have moved away from that because the use case for bonds has been a lot less relevant in a situation that we've been in where interest rates were artificially low and and they've come back up. And one of the principles that I used from Andrew Craig's How to Own the World when I first was investing, well, I was, I, I had like a recurring small direct debit when I was like 18, 19, which was great to start, or sorry, about 20 when it was great to start. But when I read that book, I was like, right, I'm going to be a lot more active in my investing. I'm going to increase my allocation. I'll use 100 minus your age, which is 100 minus whatever age I was. And that's your split between equities and bonds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my percentage of bonds that I've been investing in or was investing in for the last like two and a half, three years has performed so, so badly. Mm-hmm. And that was what was considered the quote unquote less risky stuff. Yeah. Whereas equities were considered risky, but albeit there's been different times where they performed really poorly. Overall, equities have massively outperformed bonds over the last few years. And it's speculation to say, but it appears that that is likely to be the future. And even people like Pete Matthew, who are financial advisors and who typically have jumped to the defense of bonds, has spoken about at a younger age, having far more exposure to equities, even than an 80%, potentially as much as 90, 90 10, or even 100% if you're comfortable with that. Mm. Which is uh, which is kind of strange when you think about it, because bonds are actually more attractive today than they were, because the price has come right down. So I think there's actually far more of a case for investing in bonds now than there was two years ago. But 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 I think what's happened has forced everyone, like you say, to reevaluate the, this this idea that they are they're the safe bit, and they they were meant to. The, the whole thing was they're meant to move inversely to to equities. So if you hold both, one will do when, well, when the other does badly. But in 2022, that did not happen. Mm-hmm. A, a diversified portfolio last year would have performed worse than if you'd owned just equities, which is not supposed to happen. But again, it's one of those things that people people take, it's all like, have this as like a fixed rule, this is how the world is. But actually, just because it has been like that the majority of the time for 30 years, doesn't mean it's going to be like that in the future. Yeah, phrases like past performance is not always an indicator of the future are really important, but none more so when you see situations like that, Rob, where that's just like conventional logic would dictate, as you say, that might be a safe haven. Guess what? It wasn't in the slightest. And as you say, equities, which are considered a higher risk part of a portfolio by many people, were, were actually far more higher performing. Mm. And, but you mentioned already principle four was around investing in in real assets and you called out property and that's what you're, you're best known for for your, for your content on, on online. What do you see going on in, in that space just now when it comes to property investing? So I'm I'm always trying to aware of correcting for my own bias when it comes to property because of course, you know, I've written books about it, I've got, I've got a business in it. So I'm always going to be inclined to to see the best case for property. But but a lot of people, especially in the in the mainstream financial world, just don't like property. They don't they don't like it because it's because it's illiquid, which it is. They don't like it because you can't get the diversification, which is true. Um, they don't um, they don't like it because um, it's seen as having hassle attached to it, which it, which it can do. Um, and so there are lots of reasons why people don't like it. But I think there are so many reasons to like it. The word I talk about it in the book as as, a, as an example of a real asset. Um, and it's because it's this fundamental thing that 
every, every property has a value. It might not be the value it has today. Of course, the price can go down, but if you if you buy a good quality asset, you'll always be there'll always be an income stream that you can have from it because people will always need somewhere to live, and the and the nature of that is that the that income stream tends to go up broadly in, in line with inflation over time. So. And of course, like I said, the price can price can go up, price can go down, but the price of it doesn't really matter until the time you come to sell it. So everyone's always obsessed with what house prices are going to do in the next 12 months. But unless you're planning on selling in the next 12 months, it doesn't make any difference. So I've, having declared my bias, like I said, I think there there is a, a lot to like about it. Um, I think the the challenge with property today is... Obviously, as we've been talking about a lot, interest rates have have gone way up, which means that um, that what that means is that people's people's um, cost of debt is is going up, which means that uh, I mean rents have gone up, been going up as well, which makes it which helps out investors, but it still creates an issue if you've been borrowing at two percent and now at six percent, it's going to be a lot harder to make it work, um, and also as a result of that you'd expect prices to correct downwards because you know if you're going to be able to if if you're going to be able to, to to make a lower return on it based on the cost of debt you'd expect the price to come down to kind of equalize things out but that hasn't happened and so that's that then takes you back into price speculation we like, well is is a property crash around the corner and um we could we could have um I've kind of got I've got a view on where I think things might be but um, I think everyone's view needs to be taken with a pinch of salt because no one actually knows. And as we were saying saying earlier, you know, people predicting house price crashes all the time and <laughs> they haven't come to pass. And so it's uh, it's always worth being humble about your ability to predict the future. Yeah, what I like most about your fourth principle in the real assets is that, as you say, if the leverage and debt that you've used to purchase and acquire that property and you're using it as a, a buy to let or a service accommodation or whatever strategy you're using when it comes to your property investment people will continue to need houses and that's only going up with a growing population in the uk anyway and that for me seems like something that's tangible and it's reassuring and while i have one property which is the one that i live in and i i own i co-own with, with with my brother I was really enticed by crypto during 2020 and I, a, a portion of my allocation went towards that. I know that from the over 200 odd guests I've interviewed, many of the wealthiest ones, and I'm talking about wealthier in terms of like assets in total, not necessarily like what's on show, mm -hmm. they all have an exposure to property and sometimes success leaves clues. And I certainly see that in the longer term, I am tempted by the idea of having a portfolio of assets to earn money over time and if i can afford the, the the debt at the level it's at in 2023 or 2024 when it comes to me doing that that gives me reassurance that it's a slightly longer term strategy that i can see how i could accumulate wealth or an income stream through that over time and not passive income which i i find a, a kind of ridiculous term when it comes to some of these things yeah exactly i mean i always talk about 
property as being somewhere to store wealth over time it's like it's, it's a very it's a very hard way to make money in terms of like you know if people think about flipping properties and or, or buy, buying in a hotspot and prices shoot up and two years later you've got way more it's really hard to do that but as a as a long as a long-term store of wealth for the reasons we've talked about it's a it's a very good one it's not the only one but it's a I, in my opinion a good one to have as part of the mix other ones that people talk about are gold and silver and that would fall under investing in a in a real asset class what's your opinion on those two um i i don't know enough about them um gold is people won't like people don't like saying this but gold is like bitcoin in a way um in that pure like go in that gold is gold is theoretically uh, stable but it but but in practice but in practical terms isn't like the price can go absolutely all over the place um in the say but it, even though it is like a form of it's a form of hard money in that there is a, a fixed quantity of it you can't just like double the quantity overnight um but nevertheless um the value of it can go all over the place um so um, and I sort of see, see Bitcoin in the same way. It's like oh, we go oh well, you know, limit, limited limited supply and all the rest of it. Um, it should be stable, and over the long term, you can you can see it would be, but the fluctuations are enormous. Um, so I think that's a long way of saying that like neither of those things produce an income stream. So I wouldn't want to have massive exposure, but I see I see investing as trying of trying to not trying to be super smart not trying to predict what's ahead but just owning a bit of everything um if you if you own quality assets for a long enough period of time there'll be times when some are doing well some are doing badly and all the rest of it but over time you'll be rewarded so i've i have i have some exposure to gold i don't think i've got any silver um but it's just as but it's as part of a mix rather than a particular belief in what it's going to do in the short term I think that's why somebody like yourself will resonate a lot more with more people within an audience because you're willing to say you've built a lot of your success and your wealth and property, but you're also willing to have an exposure to gold, to Bitcoin, to stocks, which we'll, we'll come on to. And sometimes when somebody's like a, like a quote unquote a maxi and they just are really hard and they say it's my way or the highway, it's a lot less easy for people to appreciate and don't get me wrong sometimes it is better to just be a total specialist in one thing and just completely drown out the noise and just follow your path and i know people that have done very well in some of those fields and like people that would never ever consider investing in the stock market but they've got like 10 houses and you're like okay mm. fair fucks like you're, you're you're smashing it in that space because you've just put the blinkers on and not been distracted but for the average listener it's probably better to consider all these different approaches and be like, okay, well, maybe I should have um, a bit of exposure to something and, and, and own the world, quote unquote. And what I find interesting and a really quick segue on on crypto, at the time of recording, it's recently hit around $36,000 um, for, for, for Bitcoin. The number of messages that I'm getting from people again, talking about crypto based on the podcast or based on what I've shared in my Instagram story, I'm like, okay, that's this is just like last time. This is just like what happened when it went in its last run. Whereas in January, when it was at 16,000, nobody wanted to talk. Well, not nobody, but nobody outside of the space wanted to talk about it. And I think that's always a sign that something's going to happen in these spaces. And don't get me wrong, it might be that people start talking about gold in a couple months' time and, that, and the price responds accordingly as well, because where interest is, price typically falls yeah yeah it's it's so true it's it's the same with any asset isn't it people only want to buy it when it's expensive and going up which is so nuts but it's but it's the way it is and whenever something's being talked about that's 
generally not a not a positive sign about its medium term future. We see it in the pro, in pro, we talk about it in property all the time. Like the only the only time that the like the media is excitable and positive about property is when it's booming, which means it's probably going to crash soon afterwards. And like how many how many like so, you're probably not old enough, but like but in 2007, there were not a lot of stories saying, "Hey guys, want to be a bit careful about property at the moment?" No, everyone was. It was all the headlines were like, "My house earned more than I did last year," and that was seen as a good thing. And then, but but then in 2013-ish, which I think would have been like the best time to buy property in recent memory, like the absolute bottom, you couldn't find anyone being positive about it at all. It's like you'll if you if you listen to the popular narrative, the the what the crowd is doing, what the media is talking about, or whatever, you're always going to be led in the wrong direction. So you can either be contrarian and go against that, which comes with its own risks, or you can just go, well, I don't know, and just have a bit of everything. Yeah, completely agreed. And one thing I'll, I'll say publicly when it comes to crypto this time, I won't get like that kind of whole um, like, and I don't use lots of the terms but like diamond hands. And like uh, when when it's when when it gets to sixty nine or seventy or eighty this time round. I will be much more confident about selling off the top of the profit. And that's why I think it differs significantly to other assets. Like I've never sold any of my stocks, but Mm. I've sold off the top of my XRP and off the top of my Bitcoin when it's been pumping because I've been like, well, it's going to drop again. I'll just buy back in. And that's what I think is so different about it as an asset class. And yes, time in the market is better than timing. But with crypto, you almost need to do a little bit of both. So even at this moment in time, if you've got a, a longer term time horizon and people have been saying to me like, oh, is it too late for whatever coin? I'm like, well, depends what your price prediction is for for, for Bitcoin. If you think it's going to go to 100, which just based on market cycles, in my own personal opinion, I, like, I'm quite confident on that. Then if you buy at 36 or you buy a, a percentage of Bitcoin at 36, then you're probably fine. But it might go to it might go to, it might go go to to 25 next week or the mm-hmm. week after that. So you, you need to strap in for the ride for these things. Yeah, and it's so tough. And crypto is really one of the hardest because it can have su- such big and rapid swings but one of the 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 great things about property is that it's so hard to sell which is like it's meant to be one of the drawbacks but i see it as a as a feature not a bug because you can't panic and sell it on the way down like great point it's um you go on if you kind of take the view of like well you know if you own anything quality for long enough you'll be all right well property is ideally suited for that because it's the default doing anything else is a real pain in the ass stop being so sensible rob that's that'll never <laughs> catch on um f- fifth and final principle was invest in stocks boringly and you've just been sensible there but you advise people to invest boringly in stocks what does that involve um two things uh one is not picking individual stocks um because it's um it's very very difficult to successfully do so it's like just like buying buying the index having broad exposure and the other part of it is um is 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 favoring boring boring companies boring sectors um which is this is one where books date because this has played out since i wrote it but it's like you had all all your kind of your growth stocks which um which went on a huge run from 2020 to 22 and then came back and gave up most of those gains over the course of a few months and so it's um it's again thinking about the way the way the world is likely to be over the next decade or so um more more boring sec- companies, boring sectors are likely to do better, relatively speaking. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean by investing boringly. It can mean a couple of different things, but I think if, if stock stock picking is one of those things where 
everyone is exciting. Everyone wants to do it. Or I think a lot of people feel like you have to do it. Like that's the way that you invest. But um, for, for almost everyone, like, spend, like just not thinking about it, just putting it on autopilot and spending your time on like, earning more money instead, that's going to get you far, far better results. That was one of the big messages from Nick Magilli's book, Just Keep Buying. Um, and when I had Nick on the podcast, he like did this calculation. He was like, let's say, for example, you invest 500 pounds a month. Great. Well done. That's 6,000 pounds a year. If you get a 10% return on that, well done. That's 600 pounds. You could have worked a couple of shifts in your mate's bar or your mate's restaurant and you make 600 pounds. So in the yep. grand scheme of things, let's think about how much money can we earn through my day job, my craft, my side hustle, my main business, maybe when it takes over as, as the main business. And then I can start putting 10,000 pounds into market. 15,000 pounds into the market, I can max out my ISA every year, 20,000 pounds, and I can max out my pension, whatever else. Then we're talking about genuinely moving the dial. And that's not to discourage anyone if you're investing 50 pounds a month. Fantastic. It's a phenomenal habit for you to start to build up. But let's keep thinking about, let's make, keep, keep the goal the goal. And the goal mm-hmm. should be to improve your income, uh, in, income and earning power rather than being like, oh, by the way, I've just spotted this new stock and during during c19 i did it i i spotted um it was it 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 was a spac so special purpose acquisition company and it became lucid which is an an ev company electric electric vehicle company and it was it was going bonkers i can't can't, at one point i was something like 300 percent up and now it's like and and i held and now it's in the gutter because i spot I, i i spotted it and i was like oh similar to tesla like but it's got it's got really good fundamentals and the board that are on the the SPAC are really high level and they're all experienced in EVs, but I think it was a bit of a pump and dump. So yeah, it didn't, it, it didn't go too well. My one experience with trying to pick a, pick a stock, Robin, I'd much rather I'd put the, that, um, that, that, that number of pounds into, into something a little bit more boring. Yeah, I know it's, it's investing is, you 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 see the glamour and you and and you you, you see the the possible because it's possible right that's the thing it's possible to get a quick win and to to do really well but just because it's possible doesn't mean it's likely and doesn't mean it's a good idea and so it it's like it's and I I really it is boring but I really see investing as the place is the place where you take the you take the money that you've created from the value that you've generated and you store it. For, for, for over, over time when you try and grow it it's not where you try and make your money in the first place yeah huge points rob and i've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion and as i said what i find refreshing about your content is we're talking about all these doom and gloom forces and it being rigged and conspiring against you but you are giving people a level of empowerment and the kind of people that listen to self-development podcast every single week want to take some form of personal agency and responsibility mm. and i think when you consider your five principles that's massive and as you said you finished the book kind of on that note of like None of this is worth losing any sleep over, but you've given people the tools to move forward with. And for that, I'm, I'm really, really grateful. And if people want to continue the conversation with you, where should they head towards? Um, so you can find um, all my property stuff is done through um, uh, Business Property Hub. So you can, we're at propertyhub.net. You can find the property podcast there and all manner of other stuff. Um, if you're invested, interested in investing more generally, my website is just my name, which is robdix.com. Um, and I'm somewhat active on different social networks. So you'll find me there somewhere. Brilliant, Rob. Those will be linked in the show notes below. Thank you to you. And thank you to you, the listener. I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very soon.